Welcome to the A Fire podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson. Drawer Poleg, Part 2, Back to the Future. This is a continuation of a podcast discussion uh, I've had with Drawer Poleg. He's the author of Rethinking Real Estate, A Roadmap to Technology's Impact on the World's Largest Asset Class. He also advises some of the world's largest investors and is the co-chair of the Urban Land Institute's Tech and Innovation Council. So just to change gears a little bit here, um, in your book, you, you, you refer quite a bit to the late 19th, early 20th century as a model to understand all these newfangled things that we're seeing in real estate, like co-working or co-living or different ways of thinking about it. Um, and it seems to me that in the early 20th century, we have another event to point to in terms of the, the influenza pandemic. What do you really draw from that time period 100 years ago or so? And how should we think about them going forward into our 2020s um, as we come out of this uh, crisis? So there are two main things I like about the, the late 19th century, early 20th century. One is just the, the reminder that everything we see around us that we take for granted has not been around for very long. And there are completely different ways of... <laughs> of building things and of using space. And that also a lot of the things that seem very conservative and very normal for us today used to be considered very, very radical. Uh, even the idea of just living in an apartment building, not a shared, uh, not a shared compound, but just like the, the idea of an apartment building used to be considered immoral and radical and, and, and something that uh, a decent person with a family would not subject the, his wife and kids to. Uh, and then it just became the most normal and most uh, middle-class thing to do. Uh, but more broadly, I think the, the pre-industrial world or the early industrial world uh, is much more similar to, to all of human history. I think in a way, the 20th century was a very unique time where a very large middle-class emerged in a certain way uh, in developed countries that worked in a certain way, in a very kind of structured, very balanced way of, you know, same time, same place every day in the same types of buildings, going through uh, the same career path with a lot of people with, with a level of stability and security that, that is very, very, that's basically singular in human history. And I think we're now moving away from it again. So currently all of our cities, all of our office stock, all of our housing stock is built around the assumption of a large, stable middle class. Uh, and, you know, and the needs of that middle class and the financial capacity and stability of that middle class. And all of that is going away. So, again, it doesn't mean that we're going back to the Middle Ages or to some kind of uh, chaotic mess. But it does mean that uh, we have a lot to learn from history. 
Well, and certainly we saw significant change uh, as we moved into the 20th century that you pointed out um, on, on everything from how we lived to how we got around and everything else. It was it was certainly a dramatic time. And it seems like we're facing those things again, even though we may be moving back to a pre-20th century model, uh, economic model anyway. Um, you talked a bit about apartments versus hotels. Um, and about how related they are. And I, I found that really fascinating and the way you pointed to how those things were were done in the 19th century um, and apartments not existing, um, that it was all hotels. Um, but it seems that apartments today are becoming more and more like hotels. Um, you talked about Airbnb and, and how the real impact of Airbnb is not on hospitality or hotels, it's on apartments. Can, can you explain that? Sure. So first, in terms of historical context, so in 1850 or so, cities like New York and Philadelphia barely had proper apartment buildings. You know, they had uh, mansions that belonged to wealthy people, and sometimes these mansions were converted or divided or turned into tenements, and they had hotels. And a lot of the hotels that are still around, you know, such as the the Plaza Hotel or Ritz-Carlton, were actually places where wealthy or upper-middle-class families would just stay for months on end or for years or or on a seasonal basis. And and even that word hotel didn't actually mean a place where you go to stay overnight. It just meant like a a place where there's apartments, a place that is not a house. And uh, gradually it seeped, it it kind of trickled into the middle class and even the working classes. So, I mean, there were different types of hotels and boarding houses for different types of people. So it wasn't just something for rich people, but there was something for everyone. And all of it had, all of these houses all of these typologies had a certain level of flexibility. They had all sorts of services, such as allowing people to dine together and to do their laundry together. And in some cases, they even had a farm on the roof uh, and even communication system that allowed people uh, through uh, <laughs> through various t- uh, tubes and pipes to even communicate with the, with the bellboy downstairs. And only gradually, first these things were kind of eradicated in cities for various reasons, partly for moral reasons and, you know, people kind of thinking that they're uh, uh, breeding grounds for uh, for people uh, cheating on their wives or drinking or partying too much or kind of spending too much time close to each other. Uh, and partly because of, uh, you know, cleaning up things that had to be cleaned up, you know, I mean, a lot of these tenements obviously were not uh, suitable for human uh, habitation. And... Then again, because of partly thanks to the emergence of that more stable life, the corporate jobs, middle class in the 20th century, uh, we had a market that that has clear delineation between, okay, what does it mean to live? What does it mean to kind of be more transient? Uh, What type of people live where at what stage of their lives? And now we're starting to see with something like Airbnb that it began at the lower end of the market, catering to people who could barely afford a hotel but increasingly is competing with hotels and even on the luxury in the luxury market and more and more especially during covid but even before it's focused on longer stays so you know people staying for a month for two months for three months and i think in one of a, a talk of yours that i saw a few uh, from a few years ago you mentioned desire desire lines or desire paths you know basically you look at what customers are actually doing not at what we're trying to build and how we're trying to force them to go and to me, when I see the same apartment on, you know, Zillow or Street Easy and on Airbnb, and if I need it for three months on Airbnb, it takes me two minutes to actually 
get a key to the door. And if I need it for a year, the process is completely different and takes weeks and involves a lot of paperwork and middleman and, and all sorts of costs. That just doesn't make sense. I, I can, it's very easy to imagine that the same kind of product could be as, as liquid as it is at Airbnb. I mean, it is the same kind of product already. And often it's the same type of customers, just like kind of a different situation. Uh, and th the way we currently consume space just doesn't really make a lot of sense. And we already see proof from customers that they're willing to uh, to consume it differently. And also from uh, from providers of space, we're seeing proof that they're willing to uh, to sell it differently. So, well, you know, it's interesting to me, it, it, you know, at a time of stability, long-term leases make more sense. In a time of volatility, people aren't really shopping for long-term space. They're not looking for something that's secure, that looks the same year after year, that feels the same. Whether you're a business or you're an individual or you know, a retailer or anyone else that uses space, an, you know, an industrial user, a shipper, anything else like that, it's almost like we need what we really want to buy is flexibility and the existing market does not provide that. Yes, and I think in a world where with where transaction costs are diminishing towards zero, you know, and the cost of finding something, contracting it, paying for it, uh, even the the mechanical kind of ability to open the door uh, is being digitized. I think that all distinction between long term and short term uh, is less and less relevant. You know, if you look at the world for for software as a service, you know, for cloud services, for example, a startup that is renting server space from Amazon, they're not thinking of themselves as, you know, a long-term or short-term. They're just using whatever they need. They might use that for, for 20 years, but they know that if they need a little less, then they pay a little less. If they need a little more, they pay a little more. If they need to add all sorts of other extra layers that they suddenly need, there's a process for that. And there's a price and there's a premium and that's fine, but they know which button to push in order to get what they want which is something that's missing in real estate. So, you know, even in real estate, you can sublet, you can, you can, you know, you can subdivide apartments, you can find roommates, all of these things existed before, but to really productize them and to offer them in a way that is on par with how, with how consumers are now used to consuming almost anything else, this is the bit that is missing. Well, and, and all those things you're describing, sublease, uh, you know, and, and, and finding other tenants and cutting up your room, perhaps, in order to, to, to give a bedroom to someone that you might lease to, these are, this has a lot of friction. This is really tough. It takes a lot of work for an individual to do. And if, as a landlord, you're able to provide that without that level of friction, I, I would think because of the nature of desire lines, things would just gravitate right to you, that it would be a, an incredible attractor. Uh, for new business, given that there seems to be that much demand. Yeah, a landlord or some other type of entity that is that is solving this problem. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most interesting examples from the single family housing market is, you know, the iBuyers, companies like Open Door, that basically allow you as a seller to say, okay, I'm just going to type my address on the website, I'm going to get an instant offer. And assuming I told the truth, in about two weeks, I basically can sell my house based on a price that I received within two or three minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and likewise for a buyer, I can now buy a house from an entity that gives me all sorts of guarantees and uh, a level of service that normally a secondhand home doesn't come with. Mm -hmm. And again, this level of liquidity, once the market is so liquid, the difference between owning or renting is starting to blur because you have owners now who are taking all sorts of 
new and sophisticated loans on their houses. And anyway, most people don't really own their house. The bank owns it. Right. Uh, and then you have renters who are building equity in all sorts of other ways. So, so, so again, that old way of looking at it, whether I'm owning or renting, it all becomes, a, I mean, it fits into the broader uh, abundance of new financial products that, that are available to, to customers now, where that notion of just, you know, I'm going to park all of my money into something for the next 10 or 20 years, whether it is a house or like a build out for an office or anything else, just makes less and less sense. There's just much more efficient ways to, uh, to play with your money today and to roll the risk onto the specific entity that is interested in that specific risk, which is something that big investors always used to do. But now even a small consumer can do that. You know, you can, I just want to live here. Someone else wants to underwrite a certain part of my mortgage, someone else wants a different part. And, you know, and it's done so easily and quickly that it starts to make sense. And of course, creates all sorts of new risks as well. And some of them will explode over the next few years. And Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. They all do. Yeah. Um, I, it, it has always struck me that, you know, the mortgage, which, you know, really kind of starting in the post-war period became what everyone aspired to and a you know, fast growing kind of part of how people have dealt with home ownership. Um, and yet, it tends to that there are two aspects of it that have confused me. One, you're renting money as opposed to renting a, a space, but you're still renting for mm -hmm. the most part. Um, secondly, the process of getting a mortgage, of dealing with a mortgage, until very recently where it's become much more st uh, streamlined, but it's still. I mean, how many documents are you signing to get yourself through a mortgage? Yeah, that's crazy. You know, it's 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 absolutely no, and all nuts. the costs and all the rent seeking right. <laughs> institutions that you have to deal with along the way. Yeah. And and I feel like to a certain extent, the homeowner is having to go through more due diligence than the banks are bothering to do for most home mortgages um, as they go forward. So I, I think it's a, a great observation on your part that that renting is is becoming something different in people's minds, potentially, that, you know, there may we may see a shift, certainly a generational shift in terms of behaviors around owning versus renting um, and the opportunities that are there. Yeah. And here too, interest rates are saving the old way of doing things because oh, mortgages yeah. are so low, then, you know, why not yeah. own? Uh, but again, but the point is that people are choosing that based on very pragmatic reasons. It's, right. it's less about, oh, I have to own a house. That's the way to live. And more about, okay, interest rates are really low. I can get great leverage here. Why not? I don't have any better ideas. So... And, like and in a time like product. this, you know, people are looking for a little bit more space, maybe a yard yeah. they can go to because, you know, they can't go out on the street. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens going forward. I, I also I, I love when we talk about interest rates as if there's something that stay put. Um, <laughs> they have stayed put for a while, but, you know, it, it's something that can be um, unpredictable, um, although it's been relatively stable for some period of time. Well, you know, it would be wrong for us not to at least touch on retail, given that it's um, in the condition that it's in and, and where it's going. So what's what's your point of view on retail? And, you know, should I give up all hope, ye who enter? Or, you know, where are the opportunities in retail? I wouldn't give up all hope. Obviously, there's, there's more pain to come. Uh, the good news about retail is that, you know, it's starting to become clearer what's going on. I mean, first, no one's in denial. Uh, which is a good start, uh, you know, the investors or the owners or the developers. I think COVID helped expedite certain things, like expedite certain bad things, but at least instead of having assets now bleed for another seven years or 10 years and pretend that, you know, it might be okay, they can now uh, reach a market clearing price, 
which would still be low. So I'm, I'm, again, I'm not optimistic in that sense, but I think that uh, we are going to see a sort of renaissance because we're finally getting to, to, to a cost level that allows people to actually try all sorts of new interesting things. And I'm generally optimistic about the potential of a lot of retail to be repurposed relatively easily to other uses. Again, assuming that you come in at the right basis, because a lot of street retail uh, is inherently val valuable. I mean, you know, you're on the street, you can, I mean, <laughs> you can become an office, you can become a health clinic, you can become an education facility. And there's all sorts of unbundling happening in other industry, not in real estate. That means that customers would need all sorts of kind of more ad hoc spaces that are easily accessible. And even a lot of suburban malls uh, have the potential to be converted to other uses relatively cheaply. So again, whether it is for, for logistics and industrial, or again, healthcare, education, uh, even retail, but just like with better operators. Uh, so there is some hope there and there's definitely room to make money and, and to do all sorts of smart plays. Uh, in that sense, I'm, you know, I'm more concerned about some office buildings because they're much harder to convert into anything else. And some of them are, are basically, you just can't do anything with them, uh, with the type of floor plates that they have and with how big they are. Uh, so with retail, there's room to do something and it takes a lot of work and a lot of money. And, and again, if, if, they be, if it becomes cheap enough, which it is, then I think there's room for people to do, uh, to make money there. Yeah. Finally. Well, I, you know, I think the good news on a lot of conversion for retail, if you're doing conversion as opposed to trying to save it as a retail center, is it's sitting on a lot of good real estate. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm starting to see some investors that are saying, here's a dead mall. It's in a good location. We just need to build something new. Zoning being probably the biggest obstacle uh, to, to redeveloping. Um, because what do you have? You have a parking lot and essentially a shed. I mean, it's a very simple structure to take down entirely or convert in other ways. So there, it's kind of interesting. A lot of what I'm hearing right now from, from investors in, in, in retail tends to be around that. What's the land like? What does it look like where it is? Um, it seems that we're a little overbuilt <laughs> at this point in terms yeah, of retail. Yeah, of course, especially in the U.S. <laughs> and and one of the themes in the book is also that the you know zoning laws and the kind of old definitions of you know what is industrial, what is retail, what is office, uh, they're starting to blur as well. You know, a lot of shopping yeah. malls now are basically stations for people to return stuff that they bought on the internet or to pick <laughs> stuff up that they bought on the internet. But, you know, right. it's still called a store while, uh, you know, a warehouse is called a warehouse, even though it, it does almost the same thing mm -hmm. just with trucks. It, actually, I'd love for you to touch on that a little bit further in terms of zoning. How much progress or, or how quickly or slowly do you see cities shifting their thinking because zoning has been one of the major obstacles, not just in the last couple of years, but for some time uh, to you know, kind of where the desire lines are going, where people want to live, work and play. Are you seeing any substantive change happening there? Definitely. So in, in the book, I describe the history of, of zoning in the United States, uh, both kind of the racial segregation aspects of it and also the technological aspects of it. And basically before uh, trucks, uh, and then cars, but especially trucks, liberated goods from uh, the need to just be next to a to a pier or next to a train station. Zoning wasn't really necessary, so like it really came to the fore when factories could suddenly move away from the sea or move away from the river or move away from the train line and and build wherever they wanted. And then uh, those more affluent 
people who already lived outside the city started lobbying the government or trying to organize in order to prevent all sorts of uses uh, from being next to them because of the uses themselves, uh, the noxious uses, but also because of the people who would work in those factories and those kind of industrial places that they just right. didn't want them as neighbor. Uh, and from that, it basically ballooned to become something that, that, that governs <laughs> all of the whole world. And, and that has, you know, an immense, I think, social cost, and that uh, prevents us from really providing access to opportunity in our cities to all the people that uh, that can benefit from that access and also prevents us from leveraging our existing infrastructure uh, to its to its ultimate capacity you know so in a lot of cities even in a dense place like New York you have hundreds of subway stations that around them you have like two or four uh, story buildings instead of something much much more dense uh, and you know the the, the the infrastructure is already there it's really just about letting people build and here too, I'm not optimistic about cities uh, becoming so open-minded or local communities becoming so open-minded because there's there's also structural issues. I mean, you know, it's not even the mayor can't just suddenly decide to rezone something so easily. Right. Uh, but I am optimistic about technology basically uh, undermining the power of traditional zoning laws. So again, Airbnb mm -hmm. is a good example, not necessarily a good outcome, but like. That basically people are saying, hey, we prefer to stay shorter term, so we're just going to go and stay shorter term. And we're going to do that so quickly. Uh, and the platform that aggregates us is going to become a political force in itself that makes it difficult then for the government to do anything against us. I think we will see more of these kind of makeshift uh, boundary defying activities that basically, uh, again, desire paths, you know, that, that, yeah. that allow people to, to do more and more things in the places that it makes sense for them to be done rather than in the places where uh, zoning laws say that they should be done. And from a different direction, coming back to the world of work, I think cities are increasingly now in competition on residents, unlike almost never before, definitely yeah. like never before in the last 200 years. Uh, and that means that those that want to succeed will have to be much more accommodating, much more open-minded. Right. Uh, they know that they need to change now, so they have to allow for you know market forces to basically redefine what can or cannot be done mm -hmm. uh, because otherwise they'll they'll fall behind and and some of them are already falling behind yeah so it sounds like uh things don't change until they do um suddenly it happens yeah um, i mean that's the thing with covid yeah it, it's it's dramatic and it's not dramatic in the same way because i think an economic slowdown would have achieved a lot of the same effect and we would have reached some sort of crash you know after mm -hmm. 11 or 12 years of the the longest bull market in history in almost every asset class it would have ended one way or another and actually it didn't even end with covid it seems right. but but it did force a rethinking absolutely which it, it's not it's not a bad thing to have people think more uh, that, that seems to be a good idea um you you wrote and I, I love this quote. Uh, you know, I wrote it down, uh, and I'd love for you to kind of use this as a as a summarization of of our conversation here. Uh, time is just sped by. So um, you you wrote technology is undermining the foundations of real estate asset value. So just like the zoning laws that you were describing be undermined by technology, everything else. So how what should investors be thinking if that is the case 
So it basically means that it's no longer a game of monopoly, as I like to say. It's not just mm -hmm. about owning a piece uh, on the board and then everyone that walks by owes you something just because you exist. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's still a zero-sum game. It's still There is still a board and the pieces that you own still matter, but it's just a much more strategic game, like a game of chess where you control the pieces that you control, but you have to constantly think about what's happening everywhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's what people should do. They have to first acknowledge the, the situation. Second, they have to understand that it's a different game, which probably requires them to partner with other types of operators, to hire different types of people, uh, to think more broadly about their portfolio, uh, not as a collection of individual assets, but kind of as a, as a holistic thing that might have all sorts of synergies and, and value opportunities that they didn't see before. And portfolio, I don't necessarily mean just the buildings. Obviously, some investors don't have physical control of the buildings, but you know, but they have data, they have other information, they have whatever advantages that you have or don't have. Uh, I think it's a good time to reassess them and decide where you fit into uh, the bigger picture. And and more maybe more specifically, it just means that people have to be and companies have to be much more specialized in whatever it is that they're trying to do. And there's plenty of examples of that in the real estate world already, but I think it's going to become uh, critical for any company to have a very clear positioning and a very clear focus. And, and again, whether it whether you're purely financial or a developer or an operator, it doesn't mean that everyone should do the same thing and become the next WeWork, but it means that they have to find their own little spot uh, based on their own unique advantages. And uh, yeah, and in the book, obviously, I dive much more deeply into it with all sorts of examples. But uh, that is in short. Well, Dror, uh, I would certainly love to get my hands on that Monopoly chess hybrid game. I think uh, that that would be fascinating to play. But obviously, we have to play it out in real life. Um, thank you so much for your conversation with us today. Uh, I encourage anyone who's listening to pick up a copy of Rethinking Real Estate by Dror Poleg. Um, also, to go to Dror Poleg's uh, website and sign up for his blog, which I have been thoroughly enjoying over the last couple of months. Uh, certainly helpful for all of us to have uh, a thoughtful futurist helping to guide our thinking and our investment strategies. So thank you, Dror, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you, Gunnar. My pleasure. You've been listening to the A-Fire Podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. A-Fire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice to this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the A-Fire Podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. A-Fire is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the A-Fire Podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of A-Fire. To learn more about the A-Fire Podcast, including underwriting guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.